Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome again to the Calvary Chapel Midweek E-Gathering. I apologize, I was told that my mic pack was not on before, so you didn't hear a word I was saying, but at least you got to hear me if you can lip read. But again, welcome. I'm glad to be with you again on this Wednesday night in spring. There is hope, that because God gives us hope. The Bible says that though our outward man perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day, and it is an exciting time to be a Christian. It's uncertain because we don't know what tomorrow holds, but it's exciting because we do know what the day after tomorrow holds um, because Jesus told us. And he said, don't let your heart be troubled. He said that many times, even as it pertains to the things that will happen in the world. And so uh, we have his word, we have his promise, we have his spirit, we have the armor that he's given to us, and we have him. He's holding us in the palm of his hand. And so it's a hopeful time, and I'm glad to be with you. I can't wait to be with you again. We have a lot to be thankful for in this time. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm very grateful for, and I just want to thank those of you that are still working in this environment to make life easier for the community at large, especially those of you that are uh, doing things where there is risk involved, those of you in supermarkets, those of you in uh, hospitals or healthcare. Thank you for what you're doing. We greatly appreciate it. Um, it it's, it's, it's a blessing that, that you're willing. I also want to just tell you how thankful I am for all of you. Uh, The Bible, again, it says that that you are the salt of the earth, and uh, you're a part of me, I'm a part of you, and I'm thankful for this church community that we're a part of, uh, and I can't wait to see you again face to face. Now, you guys get to see me, but I don't get to see you, so uh, every time you leave a a like or a comment on on whatever platform you're watching this on, I do see it. I'm not on Facebook, but I do get to see those comments and responses, and at least I get to see a thumbnail picture uh, of you or your name, and it is just a a reminder. It is a time I can pray for you, so uh, please give some kind of feedback. Let us know that you're uh, watching, that you're a part. It just keeps us connected in some small way while we're waiting for all of this to unfold and uh, we see what happens. Please stay, stay in touch with the church website um, and, and obviously you're part of the community so that you can know of any changes, updates, or information that you would want to know in the meantime. Um, if you have your Bible handy, please open it to Matthew chapter 20 for our Bible study tonight. I have a message for you from the Lord. It's a great thing to be following Matthew through as he gives to us Jesus' presentation of the kingdom. He said very early on that Jesus, from the time after his baptism and temptation, that he began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's been unfolding and revealing that kingdom to us ever since. It's the kingdom that we've been called into. We already possess citizenship into it. And so as we study, we understand it, we reveal it. And so would you guys just pray with me? And then we'll get into the text and into our study. Tonight's message is called Kingdom Capital, Materials in Heaven. A great, great study. You're going to love it. So let's just pray together. Father, we uh, thank you so much for uh, your, your presence with us and your promise to us, that you said that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, Lord, uh, we ask right now that you would open our hearts. We ask that you would unify our hearts and that you would give us an openness and a, an ability to hear you. We pray for a sensitivity, a receptivity, and, and Lord, that, that your presence and, and your person would be so real to us right now that we would hear what you want to say to us, that we'd be able to apply your word in very specific and helpful and meaningful ways, and that, Lord, you would use your truth to equip us, Lord, uh, not just for ourselves in this time, but to be useful for you, that we might be the salt that you've called us. So we ask you, Lord, to bless this time, that you would enter into your word, into your truth. I pray that you'd communicate through me, that you would give me a clarity a love not for just the truth, but for for those who will hear, Lord, this message, and that you would convey and communicate your love to each of us, to each of them, Lord. And so we ask you, please, to bless this time. Open your word to us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says that for Jesus speaking, red letters, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder 
which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, so nine o'clock in the morning, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And so no agreement given to the second wave of workers, but a promise given that there will be some uh, compensation for what labor they give. And it says that they went their way. And then again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. And so 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. respectively. And he did likewise. And then about the 11th hour, so 5 p.m. The sun is beginning to set. Evening is coming. The, the workday is almost over, but there's an hour left. He went out and he found others standing idle. And he said unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. So he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that will you receive. It's not too late. You can at least do something. So when evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. So pay those that began at the end of the day first, and then those that have been here all day, pay them last. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. So they get as much as was agreed upon for the first group. But when the first came, those that worked all day, it says that they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and you have made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take what is yours and go your way. I will give unto this last, even as unto you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is your eye evil because I am good? So, Jesus now, says the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few will be chosen. Now, I happen to love this parable. It is an extremely interesting parable that Jesus gives. One of the amazing things about it is that it is only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It isn't in Mark, Luke, or John, just in Matthew. But the reason why I find it so interesting is because the parable is given in response to an interaction that Jesus had with a rich young ruler. And that interaction is recorded in three out of the four Gospels. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably know the story of Jesus' interaction with this rich young ruler. And the story kind of goes like this. There was a man who was rich, he was young, and he was powerful. And so by this world's means, he had it all. He had everything that people chase after in their life. And yet, having all of that, there was something inside of him that was still extremely empty. He had everything he wanted, but he still felt empty inside. And so he brought this issue to Jesus, and he asks him concerning it, what must I do that I might inherit life? I have possessions, but I'm lacking something. There's still something that's missing inside. And so Jesus begins to explain to him that in order to obtain what he needs, he's going to have to trade what he has. And thus this already conflicted individual is now even more conflicted by what Jesus tells him that he must do in order to obtain the things that he is seeking to receive from Jesus. Now, he has to weigh out his values. Does he value being envied and admired more than he would value being satisfied internally? Does he value his possessions more than he values having inner peace, knowing that he can't have both? Does he value his goods 
or does he value God? And he has to weigh out these things and decide what's more important to him. Now, we don't know what happens because the Bible tells us that he went away from Jesus in a sorrowful state, meaning that he deferred the decision until a future time because it was too much for him to try in that moment to decide what he should do. And Jesus let him go. Now, the disciples of Jesus, they were witness to this interaction. And they heard Jesus say, as the rich young ruler walked away, how hard it is for those that have riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, they processed this. They thought about it for a little while. And Peter looked at Jesus. He was always one that was ready to speak. He felt comfortable speaking to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, he said, you know, we have left everything to follow you. We left our families. We left our business. We left our homes, our stability, our security. He said, what will we have in eternity for following you, for having forsaken all of those things? Now, Jesus replies to Peter's question in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And he says this. It says that Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration, that is the recreation, at the second coming, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, that's everyone, that has forsaken houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. In other words, Jesus' reply to Peter is he says, Peter, you are going to possess authority on a level that you can't comprehend, sitting on 12 thrones, and you are going to have possessions a hundredfold, a hundred times more than what you ever gave up to follow me. Now, I can only imagine what was going through Peter's mind, and probably the rest of them as well, as they heard Jesus say these things. And I think Jesus saw in Peter's eye, he watched his pupils glaze over with dollar signs, as he, the, Peter internalized this and took this in. And Jesus saw it. And so Jesus adds at the end of his answer, it's verse 30, Matthew 19, verse 30. He said, but, but, I was taught once that if someone says something and they add the word but, you just forget everything they said before it and just listen to what they say after the but because that's what really matters. Jesus says, but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it was then that Jesus gave this parable that we're studying here tonight, the parable of the vineyard workers. Again, only recorded in Matthew, but in the context of that discussion, that is kingdom capital. What are material things going to be like in heaven? That's a thing that we've got to consider, that we've got to answer. I remember some 20 years ago when I first began walking with the Lord, uh, somebody gave me a book. They were, they were trying to set me free from devotion to Christ. I was zealous. I was new. And so they gave me a book called uh, The Three Great Religions of the World. And they were trying to um, influence me to the fact that life was bigger than just Jesus and just Christianity. And basically the book was on Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, these three big religions. I never read the book, and it wouldn't have worked anyways. But I, I, I do know that even the title of the book, they got it wrong. Because the three great religions of the world are not Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They are humanism, which is, I am God, materialism, possessions are God, and authoritarianism, power is God. Those are the three great religions of the world, maybe not by profession, but certainly by passion. If you watch the lives of humanity, that's what people follow after. Me, my stuff, and my pride, who I rule over. In fact, John said, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, 
not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, humanism. It's all about me. The lust of the eyes, materialism. I want it, I see it, it's mine. And the pride of life, don't touch my stuff, don't touch me, don't tell me what to do. All of those things, those are the three great religions of the world. Now, in the United States of America, we renounce humanism, at least in word, and we decry authoritarianism. We pride ourselves on being a free people, liberty and justice for all. It doesn't mean those things don't exist. It means that we just don't profess them. But materialism, that's something that is a big problem in the United States of America. Really, worldwide, I think it's a human condition. But we particularly struggle with this, this concept of material things. We live in a material world. And we assign value to material things. And thus, sometimes we can assess the value of our lives or the value of a person's life based upon the material things that they possess. The material things that we have, they bring us fulfillment, they bring us satisfaction, they bring us a sense of accomplishment, sometimes they bring us comfort, and so we place value in those things. We also, we give our time, we give our effort, and we give our energy and our talents and our skills to obtaining material things of all different types. And so in a great, real sense, we equate our life with our materials. We turn our time, talent, and skill, invisible things, into material things, and then we put an equal sign between them. I poured out for this. I now own this. This is part of me. And that's part of what materialism is. Now, we don't call it materialism, but we do call it capitalism. Not in the sense of religion, but in the sense of an economy. Now, what is capital? Capital is a valuable resource of a particular kind. And we live in a capital world. It's a material world. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven also has material. And it also has an economy. So what does capital look like in kingdom context? Jesus just said to Peter that you are going to possess a hundredfold of what you give up. That was in the context of material things. But yet we realize as we study the Bible and listen to Jesus that it doesn't mean the same thing in the kingdom as it does on earth. So what is capital in the kingdom context? And that's what this parable is really all about so that we understand what it is that we're awaiting. Now, let's interpret the parable. What does Jesus say and what do these things mean? As we look at it, first of all, there is a householder. Now, the householder or the vineyard owner, the landowner, is none other than the Lord himself. He is the king of his kingdom. He is the owner. He's the one who possesses all and is in charge of all the resources. The laborers in the parable, all of them from the first all the way to the last, represent those that both made themselves available for service and were called. They were in the marketplace and they were invited into his uh, vineyard. So they've offered themselves and then they are allowed to serve him. The time in the parable, the first hour, the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hours, and the end of the day, the time factor in the parable represents two things, a greater thing and a lesser thing. The lesser thing would be the church age in its successive time segments. Of course, the apostles and those that began the church with Jesus, those would be those that were in early. They laid the foundation. They started this whole thing, and really, they were the ones that dug, dug the ground and planted the roots. They were the first. We would be considered way at the other end, in the 11th hour, towards the end of the church age. At least we believe that to be so, and we think that that's where we are. You know? And so in that context, time represents the span of church. However, there's a greater meaning to this time, and that is the lifespan of an individual. There are some people that come to know Christ, and they put themselves into his service and are called into his service at a very young age. 
And they spend the great majority of their life serving Christ and laboring in his vineyard. They have some 60, some 70, sometimes 80 years in faithful service to the Lord. They started early. There are others who give their life to Christ maybe just a year or sometimes even a few weeks or a day before they go to glory. They give their life to Christ because their heart softens. They avail themselves to his service. They share with whoever's around them. And then they're whisked off into glory. They go to heaven and die. And so the time in the parable represents the the part or the span of your life that you spend serving the Lord. Now, how about the penny or the denarius in Rome? Now, in the New Testament, a penny or the Roman denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. That's what you would get for a day's pay. That holds true as you go through the entirety of the New Testament. That's the context, okay? So a penny in this parable, in this context, represents the full sum needed for a time span. So it is the full sum. That's what it represents, a full reward, if you would. Now let me be very clear on this point. The penny does not represent salvation, and it does not represent your admittance into heaven, or your uh, admission into heaven. That's not what it represents, and here's how we know that. Because you cannot earn, not with one minute of service to him in his vineyard, a trip to heaven. That is a gift that is front-loaded. That's something that we receive completely by grace that Jesus provided on the cross. And so our salvation is a gift, never a wage. And so this is not representing salvation or admission into heaven. What this does represent is the reward that we will receive for what we did in his name while we are on earth. That we understand because Jesus said to Peter, those of you that have forsaken, you will receive. And then he gave this parable in context. And so the penny represents a full reward. And everyone got a full reward. The evening in the parable, when everybody gets paid, represents the recreation. When the Son of Man sits upon the throne of his glory and rewards are handed out. And then the, the, the timing of, or the, uh, the, the disbursement of the wages represents the way in which rewards will be given in the kingdom. And that is that the last will be first, and the first will be last. That will be the order in which people are rewarded for what they did. And so that's kind of the interpretation of how things break down. What I love about this story that Jesus tells, and Jesus was an amazing storyteller, is that there's a tension in it. And every good story has a tension in it. And, and, and really, like, a lot of people are offended by this parable. It upsets people because there's something that, that ruffles our feathers about the way things are handled in this context here. What's the tension? There's four things that make this tense. Number one is there's an assumption. Then there's an attitude. Then there's an absolute. And then there's an indictment. What's the assumption? It tells us in verse 11, it says that they that received the penny at the end of the day, that worked the full day, that they were offended because they felt like they should receive more. They supposed that they would be given more because they bore the burden and the heat of the day and everyone who only worked an hour or three hours or six hours successfully, they all got that penny and they were offended because they assumed that they would receive more. Now, that is very relatable to every one of us. I know that any one of you that's hearing the sound of my voice right now, if you were one of those that were there 12 hours that day, and you received a penny after watching everyone else also receive a penny, you would have felt the exact same way as would I that they did. This is normal. They are relatable. They are understandable. And the reason why we're offended and why they were offended is because there was no correlation between the effort and the compensation. Now, we are accustomed in our world and in our capital system that rewards are proportionate to service. 
Now, I say that, but I know that that's not entirely true because we've also been primed and custom to not believe that because is it actually true that one professional football player works as hard as 500 high school teachers i'm not so sure you know but but you get the idea we're primed and conditioned that effort and compensation should have some type of correlation so those that were first they expected some kind of a bonus they wanted maybe first tier status or they wanted first mover advantage in some way, or maybe a gold star. They wanted something, some kind of recognition for the fact that they did more than everyone else. But what we find in the parable is that their assumption was wrong. God gave each the same. They all got a full reward once they arrived at the finish line. That was the assumption. The assumption led to the attitude The attitude was revealed, again in verse 11, in their murmuring. It says that they murmured against the owner of the vineyard because they thought that they should get more. And their issue was this. It says they they were upset because you, they said, have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. Now, I want you to notice what the Lord says in verse 15 of the parable. Do you see what he says there? He says, is your eye evil because I am good? Now, that phrase, to have an evil eye, in the Bible, it means to be greedy. He exposes through their attitude a greed that existed within them. And he says, is your eye evil because I am good? Proverbs chapter 28, verse 22 says this. It says, he that hurries to be rich has an evil eye. It sets the context for that phrase. And every time Jesus uses that phrase throughout the New Testament, which he does, he's talking about those that are greedy for gain or greedy for money. And so the attitude that these men have, or women that were there that day, it was an attitude of greed. It was an attitude of comparing themselves with the other people that were there. They were measuring, they were assessing, they were arranging, they were assigning value and ranking, and they were seeing themselves in some way as better or more valuable than the people who put in less time. Now, this is a law like gravity on earth for human beings to do this. This is just what we do. It's part of our fallen nature, is that we're always seeking to evaluate and put things in a pecking order. We always want to either place someone under us or say that we're climbing to try to become like someone who's better than us. But everything on earth works in the system of assigning value or casting in that way. You can't escape it. To imagine a world without that is almost like trying to imagine a world without time. It's almost impossible to even think that that can actually happen. But that was the attitude. Now, the attitude was then explained or or coupled with an absolute. And the absolute is that God is good. He said, is your eye evil because I am good? Now, the goodness of God is revealed in this parable in a few things. First of all, in his generosity to the latecomer. The fact that he was willing to give of his own to someone freely that did not produce equal value to what they were receiving. That's goodness. That's just kindness to give to someone something that they don't necessarily deserve. It's also revealing to us his goodness in that we see that the Lord is not in the vineyard business to make money. That's not his motive. If his motive was to make money, then he would be cutting throats and he would be nickel and diming and giving people only what is absolutely necessary. But what we realize about God is that he's not in the vineyard business because he's trying to make money. He's doing it for what it provides for those that are serving in the vineyard and those will be partakers of the vineyard. Now, let me ask you a question. This doesn't require rocket science or much education at all. But what are you trying to produce if you plant a vineyard? Listen, it's not Welch's grape juice, right? 
It's for wine, all right? And wine in the Bible is a symbol of two things, redemption and rejoicing. And the Lord is interested in providing redemption and providing joy to people. And thus, it's his goodness that he wants to see his vineyard expanded, and he wants to invite as many people as he can into that vineyard because it's for our benefit and not his own. It goes without saying that God is good, but it's an element that must be brought up in the context of this parable. It's the goodness of God. And then the final thing that we see here that creates this tension is the indictment that this statement is to those first workers. He says, is your eye evil because I am good? In other words, are you seeking to capitalize on my goodness? That's the question that's being asked. That's the attitude that's being revealed, is that you are using my goodness as a means of fulfilling your greed. That's pretty heavy when you think about it. You see in me an opportunity and you're trying to capitalize on my goodness for your own sake. Are you leveraging my goodness in order to get rich? And here's the question. I think this is a good question for us to ask ourselves from time to time. Are we, are you and I, are we using God in some way to benefit ourselves? Is it all about me? How about not just my relationship with God, but how about just my attitude in life in general? Is everything that I'm about all about me? If I'm going to do something for you, I want to know what's in it for me. If I'm going to let you into my life, then you better have something to add to me or else I've got nothing of myself to give to you. If I'm in a marriage, then I give love or service to my spouse just based upon their fulfilling of my expectations Is life all about me? And and, and sadly, honestly, if I'm honest with myself, I'm convicted by this because often I find that, yeah, it is. A lot of things are about me, but that's what's being exposed by the Lord in all of this. See, the issue behind the attitude of these first workers is that their motive behind their effort was gain and greed for themselves. Now listen, if you're picking apples tomorrow morning or you're framing houses, please produce as much as you can to get as much as you can. In the context of this world, that's just productivity and that's just stewardship. But in the context of the kingdom, when it comes to capital in the kingdom, things are entirely different. We do not relate with God and we do not serve God because of what we're going to get from God, whether that's here in this life or whether that's in eternity to come. See, we don't follow him because of cash. We serve him because of connection and cause. That is because of relationship and what we believe. And so we relate to him and we know him. We're invited into his vineyard And therefore, we serve him because we are knowing him. We're walking with him through it. We're learning of him. We're growing with him. And it's also because of cause. We know what the vineyard is. We know what it has done for us. And so our desire is to build that kingdom, and we want others to be beneficiaries of the same grace that we have received. Now, isn't that exactly like what a marriage is like? You know, I think of me and my wife. You know, we don't love each other. We don't serve each other. We don't do things for one another simply because they're going to do something for us. My wife doesn't come to me at the end of the day and say, hey, where's my paycheck? I taught the kids all day and did your laundry and cooked you food and put up with all your, you know, where's my money? She doesn't do that. And at the same time, I don't, for her, say, hey, I've been breaking my back all day. I've been doing everything that I'm called to do. So now you, what have you done? We don't do that because there's a relationship. We're growing together. We're growing in our love for one another, we're growing together as people, the two are becoming one. There's a communion that exists and we value the depth of that relationship and the love that's in it. It's the same thing with the Lord. The other reason, me and my wife, why we serve our family, why we serve our kids, why we do what we do, it isn't for what we're going to receive, but rather it's because of the cause we truly value the lives of our kids. We, 
we want to model for them values and a culture that's going to cause them to thrive so that one day when they launch, they can do better than we did. They can have more than what we have. And we believe in that cause. We're not raising them and pouring ourselves into them because of something that they're going to give to us. I, I will be honest. I hope secretly that one of them has a log cabin in the Rockies that we get to go visit when they're, but I'm just throwing that, I'm not, I'm not I, it's not about what we get from them, and you understand, it's about what we get to give to them. It's the connection, and it's the cause, and so it is with Christ and his kingdom. We serve in his vineyard because of what he did for us. We love him because he first loved us. That's our motive. That's our connection. Our cause is that we really believe that he is the answer for a fallen world. He left us here to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And therefore, it's our privilege to serve in his vineyard, to build it and beautify it and grow it, not for what we'll get, but for who we'll bless because we believe in what he's done for us. That's the cause. And it's the way it is in the kingdom. And so our reward that we have is the privilege of being in his kingdom. Now, Jesus saw something in Peter's eye when Peter said, what will we have there for? At least the potential for it. His motive, Peter's motive, and Jesus could see it, was a desire for prominence, a desire for prestige, and a desire for price. And that's totally normal. Those are the things that drive men and women in the world that we live in. We want to be first, we want to be honored, and we want to be envied. That's just a part of human nature. But can I tell you something in gentleness, but it's the truth, is that if those things drive you, if you're driven by a desire to have prestige, to have honor, to be envied, you might not like and enjoy heaven. <laughs> you might get there and say, well, wait a minute. This isn't what I expected it to be. I want to apply this message by asking Three questions. Three questions that you can ask yourself by way of reflection. The first question is this. Who really deserves grace? Does anyone really deserve grace? See, all of these that were called into this vineyard to labor, every single one of them started in the same place. They were lost. They were without hope. They were hungry. They had no resources. And apart from someone coming and providing what they couldn't provide for themselves, they would each have nothing. That's all of them, even those that came first thing in the morning. They were all needy. Now, one of the things that I absolutely love about this particular parable is that it's kind of the, it's kind of the opposite perspective from the prodigal son parable. And I, actually, the prodigal son, yeah, the, the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. You know, the one where the guy says, Dad, give me all the money that is mine in the inheritance. I'm tired of your rules and your household. I want to go do my own thing. And the dad gives him his money. He goes out. He wastes it all. He's eating pig slop. And then he comes to his sentence and says, I'm going to go humble myself and go home. My dad, he, he might make me a servant of his, but even that's better than what I've got. So he goes home, and the father not only takes him in, but he throws his own robe on him, kills the fatted calf, and throws a banquet because his lost son finally got right and came back home. Now we read here the story of the prodigal son, and we immediately, we identify with him. We love the prodigal son because we realize that we all are. He grabs our heart. But then there's the older brother in the story, and he's the villain. And he gets upset. He's angry. He says, I've been here all along. I've kept the rules. I've honored you. I didn't go spend your money on prostitutes and waste and you've never done anything for me. And the father says, you're here always with me. You've got everything that I've got. Relax. And he becomes the villain in the story. We like the prodigal. We don't like the older brother. But when we read this parable, we get the other side of the story. Because now we relate with the first workers. We go, yeah, they did more. They deserve more. Why does the person who only put in one hour get as much as the people who put in 12 hours. That's not fair. Let me ask you a question. Does grace, which all of them received, does grace take equity into account? And the answer is no. 
No one deserves grace. Grace is something that is freely given. And no one deserves anything from God. Let me ask you a question. What do you really deserve? Maybe you were saved at a young age. And maybe God graced you with a mind that's clear. And he gave you gifts and talents and the ability to serve him. And he provided for you in your life in such a way that you could grow strong in the Lord, that you could acquire a lot of truth, that you could be fruitful in your walk with him and lead many people to Christ or do great things in his name. And you live your entire life living that out. And then there's someone else, the deathbed conversion. Their heart softens just before death. They share with their immediate family and a couple of nurses, and then they go off to glory. And then you both go to heaven and you stand before Jesus, and both of you receive a full reward. Did you, the young, sharp, fruitful person, did you deserve more than the other person? The answer is no. You know why? Because you were lost dead in your trespasses and sins, and if it wasn't for Jesus dying on a cross and paying the price to save you from it, you would be lost for eternity. You were lost, they were lost. So everything that you and I receive is grace. Does anyone really deserve it? No, we don't deserve it. We deserve nothing. The second question I want to ask you tonight is who in this parable of these workers that worked at different hours Who really is the best off among them? The person who fared the best in this. Is it really the person who only worked for an hour and yet received a full day's pay? Is that the one? I think of, remember Brian Regan, the thing that put him on the map, that first thing when he talked about how his parents put him into Little League and he hated baseball, and he realized that he could play half a game and get the whole snow cone? And that's what got him excited. I could play half a game, and I still get the whole snow cone. And he was excited about it. Really, the person who only works an hour, and yet they receive a full reward, is that person really the one who has the greatest advantage? Or is it the one who bore the burden in the heat of the day? I want you to think about this for just a minute. The person who bore the burden in the heat of the day, that person was busy, that person was burdened, And that person was sweaty, but that person was found. They were secure, they had purpose, and they were fruitful with their life. Consider the other person. They were hungry, they were lost, they were anxious because they didn't know if they would have provision. They were under reproach, they were not content in their spirit, even though they weren't doing anything and they were idle, but they were anxious in it. Were they really better off than the others? I remember that feeling. I remember in my early 20s, I went to work for a company that was a startup. They were a a startup construction company, and it was a strange business model that they had. They had three owners and me. If you're thinking about starting a business, don't go with that one. It's not a good one. But they were in business for four years, and I was with them from the first day until the day that they finally folded. And I remember when they folded, the day that they came in and they said, we have to close the doors. It's not going to work out anymore. We love you. Sorry. Have a great life. You know, and it, they were a little nicer than that. You know, they were great guys that I worked for, and I really came to, to appreciate and love them. But uh, I remember going home that day and not knowing what I was going to do, and I remember that feeling. I remember I sat in my vehicle, uh, I parked it in the barn of the place we were renting at the time, and I just sat in it for like an hour, and I think I even cried a little bit because the feeling of insecurity overwhelmed me to just not know if I was going to be able to continue to provide or what was going to happen next or what any of it meant. I just remember that feeling. Now, I want you to try to remember what it was like for you, if you know Christ, what it was like for you before you knew God, to have in your spirit and in your soul and in your heart This inner frustration, like the rich young ruler. You might even have goods and things, but you know inside there's something gnawing at you that you're not living your purpose, that you're not doing what you were created to do. You have interests, talents, desires. You have affections. You have something to give, but you have no place to give it. That's a horrible feeling. And I submit to you that the person who bears the burden in the heat of the day has it way better off than the person who is sitting idle in the cool of the shade. 
There are things that are added to us when we are at work in his vineyard that are unspeakable riches. I came to Christ along with my wife at the age of 19. She's one year older than me, but she's been in, in, in the faith two years longer than I have. And so we started young in devotion to Christ. And I can't even begin to tell you the things that he has done and given to me in my life, the unsearchable, unspeakable riches, the wisdom, the relationships, the experience, the truth, the skills, the things that he's added and taught me to do, the things that he has drawn out of me that never would have been drawn out of me by the world or the direction I was aimed in by my parents. None of that ever would have happened. And it's not till now, looking back, that I can see that he was enriching me while I was working in the field. Because those things that I possess now, no one can take those things from me. They're mine. You could kill me and you can't take those things from me because they're written in my soul. They're written in my spirit. They're a part of who I am. Funny, I went the whole way kicking and screaming. God, why are you making me go this way? Why is it? And you know what? The truth is, there is a bit of a burden and heat of the day when you choose to live a life devoted to Christ and serving in his vineyard. It's not easy. It's a sacrifice. There's, there is, an, there is a, a, a somewhat of an insecurity in it because you don't know what he's doing or why he's bringing you through things. He's got to teach you things that you don't know why you need to learn them or what you're learning in the middle of them. It's not easy to serve Christ with your life. But what you get from it, you can't put a material equivalent to it or a price tag on it. It's internal and it's rich and it's real and it's powerful. The longer you work in his vineyard, the more you receive that cannot be measured and can't be taken from you. Third question, and then we're done. Third question for you to consider is what if kingdom life is not a zero-sum game? Now, don't be confused by the term. Zero-sum, simply an economic term used when there is scarcity in a system. Or you could say when there's more people in a system than there are resources to provide. It's kind of like musical chairs. Musical chairs is a zero-sum game. And part of our problem in understanding this parable is that we live in a world where scarcity prevails. Now, I know some would argue and say, well, that's not really true. If you redistributed all of the wealth and resources in the world, there would be plenty for everybody. And yes, that's true in the context that, yes, we would all eat. But still, you still couldn't give everyone Alexis because there's only so much. There's only so much waterfront property. Everyone can't have beachfront property. And so you run into this issue of scarcity. And at some point, life on earth becomes a zero-sum game. One side can only win if the other side loses. Either something is mine or it is yours. There's not enough of everything for everyone. And so knowing that some of our desires here on earth go unmet, it's hard for us to rejoice at our neighbor's good and to shift from this world thinking to kingdom thinking. Now listen to what Jesus said. It's Matthew 19, verse 29. Listen to what he said. He said, everyone, not most people, not some, not the first movers, but everyone who has left Houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold. What that means is that in heaven, in the kingdom, there is no scarcity. In the kingdom, kingdom capital, one equals full. There is no such thing as two in the kingdom economy. Because two doesn't matter. You can't have two of something. One is complete. It's always full. It's impossible in a heavenly context for you to receive more. There is no such thing as more. There is only full. I remember last summer, uh, we, we went to a Renegades game, just our family. The entirety of us went. And we, we bought our tickets online, and we had to pick them up at will call. 
And so we went to uh, the, the counter and the teller, we gave our last name, and they gave us an envelope that was half an inch thick. And at first I just thought, okay, there's brochures and a program and all this stuff. But I opened up the envelope and there was 60 tickets. We counted them. 60 tickets to that game inside of there. Now, they had given us the wrong envelope. They gave us, my name was on it, but it was supposed to be assigned to a group of 60. We were only seven. Now, at first I thought, cha-ching, you know, jackpot. We got 60 tickets. Problem is, we can only use seven tickets. 53 tickets, there's no use for these. They have value, but I don't need them. I can't use them. Once I reach seven, I am full. I don't need any more. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus said. It's John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said that he is preparing something for us in eternity. Listen to what Peter says about that something. It's 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 4. He says, or verse, starting in verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter tells us that the inheritance, the reward that we have is already in heaven. It's already been kept for us. It's on, on, in heaven and it is complete. There's a fullness that awaits us there. Now listen, every day on earth in this kingdom here down below, Addiction, frustration, and suicide are upon people because they thought they wanted what someone else had. They looked at a lifestyle or a set of possessions or a bank account and they said, I want that. What do I need to do to get it? And the answer was, you need to be a lawyer or you need to be a doctor, or you need to be a politician, or you need to sell some substance, whatever it is, that's what you got to do in order to do it. And so people wanting the wages embraced the weight, not knowing what it really was. And they got themselves into something that they hate because they thought they would enjoy what that something pays. And that is a big snare. Because I have seen in my time, many people that have everything that they want, but they hate their life because they did it for something they would obtain, but they ignored what it was that they were made to do. And listen, it is the same thing in the kingdom. If you read ahead, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 and on, do you know what the next thing that happens is? Jesus tells the disciples again that he's going to go to Jerusalem and that he's going to suffer and die. And, and, and upon hearing this, two other of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they prod their mom to go and ask Jesus if he would reserve the seats on his right hand and on his left in heaven for her two boys. And I just find that hilarious because it reveals that they were under the same thing as Peter. Peter, it was possessions. For them, it was power. We want those seats. We want to sit on the right hand, on the left hand of Jesus and his kingdom. We want the prominence. We want to be, we know that was their motive because that's why everybody else got mad at them. As you read on, you can see that that happened. You know, but let me just go on the record and I just want to say this to you. You can hear me say it. It can resound for all of eternity. I don't want those seats, me personally. I don't want to sit on Jesus' right or on Jesus' left. Don't get me wrong. I love Jesus. I crave and love intimacy with Jesus. What I know is I know me. And I know I was not made to be in one of those seats. The, you know that time when Jesus talked about, you know, if we're faithful, 
with what we've been given, we'll have rule over 10 cities. Some will have rule over five cities. Some people get excited when they read that. I get stressed out. I don't want to rule even one city. I'm not a city ruler. That's not in me. I don't want it. I want to do something with my hands. I want to build something. Let me run a construction company in heaven. That's what I was made for, okay? What's my point? My point is this, is that if you could have someone else's inheritance in heaven, you would hate it. Because it's not what has been prepared for you and it's not what you've been prepared for. The sum of your reward, the fullness of your reward is one. It's what he had made you for and what he has reserved in heaven for you. That is kingdom capital. That's never to be the motive of the reason why we serve. Do you know what kingdom capital is? Jesus. Jesus is the capital. He's the riches. He's the reward. Abraham learned this. He was already a rich man. And he was approached by a pagan king with a proposition that would enrich him even more. But he knew the emptiness of what was being offered to him and he turned it down. He knew, you know what? doesn't matter how much I receive in this world. That's never what's going to be what satisfies me. And as he turned around and walked away from this deal, this sweet deal, the Lord met him. And do you know what the Lord said to Abraham? He said, Abraham, don't be afraid. He said, I am your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. God in his grace found us where we were. For you, you might be sitting here and you're not found yet. And he might be in the process right now of finding you where you are. And by nothing more than his grace, he took a lost soul that was without hope and perishing, hungry, anxious, and fearful, And he said, why are you sitting here idle in the marketplace? Come into my vineyard. I've got a place prepared for you now, and I've got an eternity prepared for you in the future. And the reward that we receive is that we get to know him, we get to co-labor with him, and we get to work his cause, which is the only true good cause that this world will ever know. It's the privilege of being in his kingdom. It's not about employment. It's about intimacy. It's not about cash. It's about cause. And what awaits us in the kingdom to come, there's no scarcity at all. There's no such thing as lack. You know, the passage closes with haunting words. The passage closes in verse 16. Jesus says this. He says that many are called, but few are chosen. You know, I've often thought, you know, who are the called, but not chosen? And is there a chance that I might be one of those? Like, Lord, you've called me, but I wasn't good enough. I didn't harvest enough grapes. (laughs) Who are the called that aren't chosen? I think it's two people. Number one, I think it's the called that don't come. The rich young ruler was called. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, he said, follow me. But he couldn't get his values straight. And what he had outwardly was more important to what he needed inwardly And he chose to hang on to what was outward and he rejected the call of Christ. He was called, but he wasn't chosen. The other person who's called, maybe not chosen, I think sometimes it can be some of those first workers. See, what did Jesus say to that man? He said, is your eye evil because I'm good? I've done you no wrong. I have provided everything that I promised you, but it wasn't enough for them. And there's some people, it's not enough for them. They follow God only because of what they're going to get from God. And when God doesn't do what they want them to do, they hear the whisper that Jesus will say to anyone, go your way. That's what he said in the parable. He said, go your way. Take what is yours and go your way. That's what Jesus said to Judas. He said, go your way. And I think there are some people that they will start off in service to God and they will think themselves to be better than other people in the church or in the body or in the kingdom. And they'll think that they deserve to live a life without suffering or a life without lack or a life without sacrifice. And when things don't happen the way that they think that they should, they say, Lord, but we've been... And he says, I'm not making you stay. And sometimes some come to their senses, some they go. Many are called you are chosen. But here's the good news. If you want to be called and you come, you're chosen. And maybe you're in the marketplace even right now. Idle. You don't know Jesus Christ personally. 
I want you to know this. It might be the 11th hour of humanity and it might be the 11th hour of your life. But if you have even one minute and one breath left, Jesus says, I made you. I love you. I've got a call, a place for you. And if you'll come, you'll find in me the answer for what you've always needed, what you've always wanted. Kingdom capital is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the context of what we're living for, unto, and what's coming. We thank you, Lord, that you reveal these things so freely, that you see our hearts so clearly. You know us, Lord, and you're patient with us as we work through the issues that we have, the issues of greed and selfishness and self-seeking. Teach us, Lord, what it means to live in your honor, to live in the middle of your love, and to live selflessly for the sake of others. Help us to have a greater vision of your kingdom. Help us to see. Lord, we ask that you'd open our eyes. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for tuning in tonight. Thank you for your patience. We have a closing song for you. If you want to join with us and sing it now, we invite you to do so. God bless you. Good night. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.